WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to City Talk. And I have always admired guys that are good at writing prose, especially sports that I've been interested in all my life. And we have one of the best, certainly a name that you all know. His name is Lee Montville, and we are discussing his book, Tall Men in Short Shorts. And Lee, first of all, it's an honor to be able to talk to you after knowing of you and, and reading some of your stuff after all these years. Great talking to you, Ken. You've had a, now, long, you've had a long time to read it all. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting title. How did you come up with that title? I don't know. Uh, I, 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 I tried another title and they didn't like it. So I made a list of like 10 titles and I went down and and then that one just kind of came out of my head somehow. And uh, I sent it in, Tall Men Short Shorts and uh, they started doing cartwheels in New York City. And I said, okay, we're all set. Now, for those who have not read your book but will after they hear this interview, this is a book on the 1969 Boston Celtics. Uh, playoff against the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, they finished the season in fourth place, and I gather from your book that people didn't think they would go very far. Well, yeah, um, it, it was like the end of the dynasty. Bill Russell, the star um, and the player coach, he, he looked he looked uh, tired all season. He collapsed at a game in New York. And everybody said, this is it for Bill Russell. Sam Jones was the same age as Bill Russell, 35. And they finished fourth, which was very unbecoming for a team that had won the title 10 times, nine out of the last 10 years. And the, the Lakers had assembled a super team by adding Wilt Chamberlain to uh, Jerry West and Elgin Baylor, who were perennial all-stars. And everybody, everybody in basketball and, and just walking around thought that the Lakers were surely going to win this thing. Um, but the Celtics struggled through the first two playoffs and, and kind of came into the finals. And who knows? It was a seven-game series. And uh, I was 25 years old. And through a bunch of circumstances, I was, I was put on the job. And I had covered the first two playoff series. And I suddenly wound up covering the series, the Celtics and the Lakers. I, I, you know, 25 years old, I had, I had never flown to the West Coast, never seen a palm tree, never seen the Pacific Ocean, never seen a whole lot of stuff. Um, never had flown on a plane that had a movie on it before. And so I, I had eyes that were big as saucers watching this whole thing, and it was quite an experience. I, I was interested because one of the guys that you talk about in this book that I had the pleasure of working with at WBZ was a gentleman named Rick Weitzman. He and oh, yeah. I did call he and I did calling all sports together on Sunday nights. Oh yeah, he he helped me out a lot. I, 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 I he he wasn't on this team, but he was on the year before, and uh, he was the twelfth man on a twelve man team. And a kid from Northeastern who, who scuffled his way onto the roster. And he was able to just look at all the things that, that, that went on with, with the Boston Celtics, a championship team for all those years. You know, it, 
you weren't making a lot of money if you were the 12th man on a 12 man team. And, you, you know, it was mostly the experience for him and just watching to see how these guys operated. As you do in your book, uh, you talk about two guys that were probably at that time the best in that particular time period, Chamberlain and Russell. Compare the two as you do in your book. Well, um, they, they, were, they were very different um, in personality, in playing ability, in, in everything. Um, you know, you, you start with the fact that uh, Russell was, was a cerebral guy. He, he was very much a thinker. Um, he, he was very, very much involved in the civil rights movement of the time. And uh, Wilt was, was a physical guy. He, he had the greatest body that's ever, ever been in the NBA. Um, maybe the greatest body of any human being. He, he, he was very physically gifted at seven foot one and he could run and move and he had great coordination. But, but his mind didn't focus the, the, the way Russell's focused. So he, he had the physical tools and Russell had the mental tools. Uh, Wilt was a, a Nixon Republican and, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a socializer and stuff. And Russell was more of a reclusive kind of guy. And they, they just went at it, you know, day after day, game after game, you know, for, for the entire end, end of Russell's career. And uh, Wilt, Wilt could score when he wanted to score. He could get assists when he wanted to get assists. He could get rebounds when he wanted to get rebounds, but he had to kind of be motivated. It's like um, he waited, waited for, you know, in cartoons where, where the light bulb goes off over a guy's head when he has an idea, the, the <laughs> yeah. light bulb would go off over his head and he'd say, tonight I'm going to score. And he scored a hundred points once. He scored 60 a bunch of times. And, and he, he could score. And another night, the light would say, tonight I'm going to rebound. And he would rebound. Or tonight I'm going to pass the ball. And so it, he wasn't a real constant. He, he, he kind of amazed you with what he did, but you never knew when he was going to do it. Whereas Russell was, was pretty much a constant. And he didn't have the same numbers that, that Wilt had. But he figured out the game. He figured out how to play the game. He figured how to get his teammates involved. And so he was a far better team man than, than Wilt was. Wilt didn't like coaching. He didn't like practice. Um, so he, he was a tough guy to manage, whereas Russell was, was very malleable in that way. And Russell wound up, you know, winning all those championships and, and, and a great number of them. He, he wound up beating Wilt to, to get to the, the, to get to the, the, the championship trophy. Now, just out of curiosity, I was thinking about this over the weekend. We all know what happened in March of 1962 in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And you alluded to it a minute ago. Will scored 100 points. If they had been teammates on the Celtics together, Wilt and Russell, would that have happened? Well, I don't know. You, you, you wouldn't have had them as teammates, really, because, because they played the same position and they both were making a lot of money for, for that time. So they, they wouldn't have been on the same team. You know, one of them would have been playing and one of, one of them would have been sitting. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, yeah, 
I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, if Will played for the Celtics and he was hot and he was scoring at Will. I, I suppose they'd let him go for the 100 points. I, I really think so. All right. Uh, one of the other things that was interesting was you talk a lot about the Boston Garden. And one of the things that I found rather interesting were John Havlicek's first impressions of the garden when he saw it. And it didn't sound very good. Well, no, it, it was um, it was a tough place. It, it was it was like like an Edward Hopper painting, you know, for sports. You know, it was very dated and old timey. And Havlicek had never been to the garden. He came came in on a plane with with Jack the Shot Foley from uh, from Holy Cross, who was another Celtics draft choice. And they came in from the college All Star game to sign their contracts. And the Celtics were in the middle of the playoffs at that time. And they, they got in at night and they were staying right next door at the Hotel Manger, which uh, was part of the garden at the time. And was all very, um, you know, like like out of a Raymond Chandler novel, you know, like uh, the, the, the L trains going around, the, uh, the, they, they went to eat in, a, in, in the Hayes Bickford cafeteria you know, and there they were like the mumbling people and, and people sleeping at the, at, 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 in the booths. And Havlicek said, what is this? And he got to the, the locker rooms the next day and, and everybody had a, a, a locker that had a nail on it, you know, a nail where you hung your clothes on a nail. And he was coming from an Ohio State where they had, you know, alumni bought everything for the team. And he was just amazed at the whole the whole operation, and uh, he he kind of grew to love it through the years, but uh, but but he just uh, I'm sorry, but but he 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 was just amazed when he came in from Ohio State. Yeah, and of course, as he always likes to joke, he made Johnny most famous. Well, yeah, and when it, he stole the ball, and, and, and yeah, and, and the game ended against Philly, sure. Yeah. Oh my, what a play by Havlicek. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, Everybody I knew heard, that. Yeah, I've heard that so many times. and I love it. I I, I think that's a great moment in, in time. Now, let's talk about this uh, series. The Celtics were down two to nothing at one point before they kind of, to use a basketball term, rebounded. Mm-hmm. Sure. It looked, it looked like all the predictions were, were, were going. The Celtics had never played a playoff series before where they, they had to play the first two games on the road. Through all those championships, they always had the best record in the, in the league, and so they would always have all the home games. But not so this year um, in both when they played Philadelphia, when they played the Knicks, it, the odd game belonged to, to Philadelphia and the Knicks. And here it, it, it belonged to Los Angeles. So they opened on the road and they played pretty well, but they lost the first two games. And so coming back to Boston, it, it was imperative for them to win the two games back in Boston, because if they didn't, Los Angeles would have, would have two shots in, in, in LA to finish the whole thing. So um, they came back to Boston, Russell, Took the team right out to right out to Melrose High School, and uh, ran a practice as soon as they got back. 
you know, they, it was it was the, the night before they were going to play the game the next the, the next day. And uh, he ran a practice just to reestablish the running game and, and to make everybody think about what they were doing. And they came back and they won the game. So now they're down two games to one and they get to the fourth game. And it was one of those magical finishes where, where Sam Jones hit a jump shot off the wrong foot on a secret play that, that uh, Larry Siegfried and, and John Havlicek had, had run at Ohio State and had brought to the Celtics. And it, 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 was, it, was, all, it was all almost fate that that happened. Sam threw the ball up and didn't think it was going to go and it hit the back rim and it went up in the air and it came down swish through the hoop and landed right in Wilt Chamberlain's hands. And he, he was just so frustrated by the whole thing. But now it's two to two and anything could happen. All right. As you do in your book, and I find rather interesting, you have a, you have a chapter in there on radio and television coverage of the, of the series. And uh, it's kind of interesting to look back at how radio was at that time. I mean, they didn't, the game was not, if I recall, the fourth game was not televised and it was broadcast on WHDH FM. Right. Exactly. You know, it, it, it was, um, you, you forget how long ago all this was, you know, television was not the factor that it is today. Um, radio was a much bigger factor and the printed word was a much bigger, bigger factor. Most people learned, learned of the game either by listening to the game on the radio or just by reading the story the next day in the paper. Um, television of, of, of the seven games, only three games were televised in Boston. Um, and, and, they, they had the home blackout rule at the time so that it was supposed to preserve the, the home gate. So none of the, none of the home games were televised for either team. And uh, the, the, the Celtics didn't televise the fifth game. No, the Celtics didn't, didn't tell. Yeah. The Celtics, the Celtics did televise the fifth game. They, they, a bunch of advertisers came and put up the money at the last moment to, uh, to televise that game. But the sixth game wasn't on television in Boston. And then the seventh game, the seventh game was the one, the, the one ABC national national broadcast. And it was a Monday night and it started at nine o'clock here in Boston. So a lot of people didn't see it, uh, but radio and, and Johnny most for, for, who broadcast for the Celtics Chick Hearn, who broadcast for the Lakers. I mean, these were two all-time, all-time basketball broadcasters. And they were both, they were both biased in favor of their teams. Chick was a little bit biased. Johnny was a hundred percent, a thousand percent biased for the Celtics. You know, he he broadcast every game as if it were, you know, the Christians going off for the Crusades, you know. And, and, they were defending the town against the infidels. Um, and, and it was all quite exciting. And you, you either loved Johnny Most or hated Johnny Most. And if you lived in Boston, you probably loved him. Yeah. Again, as you compare Wilt and Russell, talk more about the two broadcasters. There's a whole section on 
Chick Hearn and Johnny Most. In fact, I heard an all-star game once, uh, an NBA all-star game on, on WEI, and Johnny broadcast the first half and Chick broadcast the second or vice versa. But it was a great broadcast with two icons. Yeah, well, whoever played, whoever was, was playing in the game from the Celtics were stars in the first half and whoever played from the Lakers were stars in the second half. <laughs> yeah, but, but compare the two. I love some of the expressions that, that Chick Hearn would use. Um, you know, like my wife could have made that shot. Oh yeah, I mean Chick stuff Herman, like that. Chick Herman invented a lot of things like no harm, no foul, and uh, I don't know. You can't park your car in there for three seconds, and um, you know he, he he threw it in from the popcorn machine, and he, he just he, he you had to pay attention to him. He was very much a staccato broadcaster, and he would talk and talk and talk and talk, and then he would throw in one of those, you know, throw it in from the popcorn machine, you know, and and. <laughs> And, and there would be just little nuggets that uh, you would pick out with your ears. Whereas um, Johnny, Johnny, Jim, my favorite thing about Johnny was that he had, he, he would, he would broadcast like if, if it was a foul, he would say, West fouls have a check, you know? And uh, if it was the other way around, he'd say, they're calling a foul on Havlicek. Like, <laughs> The Celtics never committed anything. There was never uh, an active voice involved when the Celtics did something. It was always a passive voice, whereas the other team, it was always an active voice. The Celtics won that series, uh, and a couple things happened. First of all, uh, one of the things you talk about in your book is the fact that Havlicek recommended that the Celtics sign Larry Siegfried, and Siegfried was the first Celtic to have an agent there's a good trivia question yeah um and it was for a weird thing there were rumors in the off season before this season that uh Siegfried was going to be traded to the Atlanta Hawks for for Lenny Wilkins who is a very good player and Siegfried didn't want to be traded he, he wanted to play in Boston he knew that he knew the way Boston played was perfect for the way he played and so he became a holdout and, and the Celtics never had holdouts at that time. It was always, you know, here's your contract and whoever was the player would just sign it. And, and nobody had agents and, and, and it was all very perfunctory. And all of a sudden Siegfried wouldn't sign. And he came with an agent, Bob Wolf, who had just started up as an agent. And, uh, and he, he was just arguing that he wanted, he he wanted a no trade contract. He didn't want to be signing a contract and then be traded to the Atlanta Hawks for Lenny Wilkins. And so it was the weirdest holdout ever. And they finally gave him assurances that he would have a no trade contract. And he signed, he signed for less money than he would have gotten if he had gone to Atlanta. Now, when teams win these days, we have duck boat parades and uh, uh, crowds at City Hall. What was it like when the Celtics came home from Los Angeles after winning that series? Well, the Celtics had never had a parade for all those championships. And I don't think there had ever been a parade for any champion in Boston. I mean, the Bruins hadn't won much. The, the Red Sox certainly hadn't won. And so there just had never been any parades. But somehow 
people kind of recognized that this was the end of Russell's big run and in the Celtics run of championships. And there were people actually waiting at Logan Airport. A couple thousand people were waiting at Logan Airport when the team got back the day after it won the seventh game. And Russell was amazed at that. And then they set up a parade and a reception at City Hall. And it, it was very, I don't know, it was almost extemporaneous. I think they, 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 they got some convertible cars, you know, donated from, from some automakers. And they, they had some players sitting in the cars. I sat in one of the cars and rode through because the guy said, hey, do you want to ride in the parade? And I said, sure, I'll ride in the parade. And I mean, nobody knew who I was. You know, I was just, I was the 25-year-old, uh, you know, young guy just riding in the, riding the, I was the bright young man. And I was waving to people and they were waving back and I didn't, you know, didn't know who they were. But it was, it was a modest, a modest celebration. And when the Bruins finally won the next year, that's when the whole parade thing went crazy. And, and the city hall celebration was crazy. And, uh, and, and all the Bruins were half in the bag and it was a great time. <laughs> now it's funny you mentioned that because you talk in your book, a very interesting story about May 10th, 1970, the day that the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, um, that's it, it, that was a year later, and I, I was in the I was in the National Guard, and I was at uh, state headquarters. I I was part of the crack public relations team. I was a private, um, and uh, and everybody was in the National Guard or some form of service or had been drafted and sent to Vietnam. But I was in the National Guard, and I had a meeting on on the Sunday afternoon when the uh, uh, the, the Sunday when when the Bruins were playing that that clinching game against the St. Louis Blues, and everybody knew they were going to clinch. And I, I I was kind of really kind of upset that I wasn't going to be able to watch the game. And there was a, a WBZ photographer, John Premack, was there, and he he was he was also a private. And he said, we should just sneak out of here. I live over in Brighton and we can go watch the game. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we, we snuck out of, the, uh, out of our meeting, went AWOL, I guess, went over to Brighton and we were watching in our, our army uniforms, watching his TV. And he had a, a, a piranha uh, in, in, in a tank. And he said, have you ever seen a piranha before? And I said, no, and you know, it was a nice looking little fish. And he said, well, it's time for the piranha to eat. You can watch the piranha eat. And he went and he got two goldfish and he threw the goldfish into the tank. And so it, the game had gone into overtime and, and I'm trying to watch the, the overtime, but at the same time, I've noticed that the piranha has just taken a big bite out of one of the goldfish's stomachs, you know? And the goldfish is just kind of still swimming around, but he's missing, missing about a quarter of his torso. And so I, I'm kind of intrigued by that. So I'm watching the game and then watching the, the goldfish and watching the game. And I missed Bobby Orr's goal, the most famous sports moment <laughs> in Boston history, because I was watching the goldfish getting eaten by the piranha in, in yep. an apartment house in Brighton. I, I heard, I've heard the recordings of that. 
many times, uh, both from CBS TV with Dan Kelly and, and WBZ's broadcast of it with Fred Cusick, who happened to be my instructor when I was in college. Okay. So okay. I'm, I'm well familiar with it. Uh, you also talk in here about the fact that, A, you got to write your first column when you were covering this series, and B, you, you convinced Bill Russell to write a column as well for the Boston Globe. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, you know, I, I was the bright young man. I, I, I was, I, I was trying to do everything and, uh, and, and whatever anybody wanted. And so I, I, before the playoffs started, I said to, to my boss, like the, the, the Herald Traveler and, and the Boston Record American were two separate papers. And in each of them, the previous year, it had a, a Celtics player or, or somebody doing an as told to column after every game. And the Globe had nobody. Um, Havlicek was for, I think, for the, for, for the Herald and um, Red Arbeck was for, was for the Record American. And I said, you know, we should have somebody at the Globe, you know, a, a voice. And so my boss, Ernie Roberts, said, well, who would we get? They're all, everybody's been taken. And I said, well, what about Bill Russell? And he looked at me like, you know, because Russell had a tough image at the time. You know, he, he was a cantankerous guy in Boston and, it, and had a tough relationship with fans and, and the media and everything. And I said, well, I could ask him. And so I asked him and, and we, we had a negotiation. You know, he said, how much would it be? And I, I think they said it was like 200 bucks a, a column. And he said, sure, I'll do it. And so there was no handshake, no nothing. It was like, sure, I'll do it. And I said, he's all signed up. And I, they, they must have had some business person talk to him later on. I don't know. But he did. He wrote a column for every game. And uh, in my job, he, he, what he would do is he would go to a phone and he didn't want any any ghostwriter. He just wanted to talk and, and tell his thoughts. And, and he talked onto this dictaphone record. And they, they took the record after he was done and they typed it all out and put it in the paper. And uh, my job after every game was to say, uh, Bill, don't forget to call the globe. <laughs> and every game he would just kind of grunt at me and say, I guess he, that the grunt meant yes, he would, because he did it after every game. Now, uh, because of the situation you talk about as far as radio is concerned, right now you have a radio station that contractually, but can't do it at, obviously at the same time, the Patriots, the Bruins, the Celtics, and the Revolution. You think there should be some kind of FCC rule that, uh, you know, says, well, you, you know, if you're going to broadcast it, broadcast one sport or maybe two sports, but all these on one radio for one radio station. I know, um, yeah. I, I, I don't know how that, I don't know how that works. Um, you know, th there's so many platforms now and, and things where you, you can, you, you know, ESPN plus and stuff and you watch games on your computer. And I mean, it's like, I don't think it's that big a deal anymore that, that, that things are stacked up because there's the alternative ways they present it to you. All right. Um, 
One of the things that is not in your book, and I would have loved to have asked Tommy Heinsohn this question, but unfortunately he died before we could do an interview. Why do you think he retired so young at such a young age? He just, he just, he was never a big physical fitness guy, you know, and he, he just kind of wore himself out, I think. Um, he, he had to play very hard. He, he was playing in there. I mean, he guarded Will Chamberlain a lot. And I, I, think he, I think he just kind of wore himself out and felt shot. Um, but he certainly stuck around for a while afterwards, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he sure did. As a coach and as a broadcaster, I got to know him because he used to come in uh, to see a fellow named Larry Glick once in a while. Okay. And uh, he was also very friendly with a sportscaster named Dick Stockton. And, okay. and they worked together for a while on CBS TV. And, and he fit right in. He was a good broadcaster. Yeah, I miss, I miss him now. I, 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 I miss him with every broadcast. I, I, and he's one of those guys you, you say to yourself, well, what would Tommy be saying right now? Because you, you kind of know what he would be saying, but he would be saying it much more colorfully. Than, than, than you imagine. <laughs> yes, yes, he would. Um, tell me, when you guys started out, the uh, older sports writers referred to guys like yourself as, and I quote, chipmunks, unquote. Did you resent that title? Yeah, no, that, that was mostly a New York thing. Um, and, and the whole idea, I think, from my generation of, of sports writers was to, to get more of a, a fictional kind of feel, the same kind of feel you have from, from a novel, to get that in, in a nonfiction story, to, to describe the setting, to describe the way people talk, to describe um, the, the way they dress, to describe all kinds of things. So you were always asking questions. And, and the, there were these guys in New York that were kind of the forefront of this movement, um, like Stan Isaacs and uh, Larry Merchant and, uh, and guys like that. They were always asking these questions. And Jimmy Cannon, who was an, old, an older guy and, and a great sports writer, he just listened to all these questions and he said, they sound like chipmunks, you know, just asking all these questions. And so, the name kind of stunk, stuck, and I, I no, I, I, I wanted to be a chipmunk, you know. I, I had grown up in New Haven, Connecticut, and I'd, I'd been reading these guys, and I was very excited by the approach they took, and and I wanted to take that same approach, and uh, and so I didn't, and you know, I, I was proud to be a chipmunk. <laughs> now you also mentioned in this book, and I wish you would elaborate on that that since 1969, interview techniques have changed. Can you amplify on that a little bit? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's all a TV show now. Um, you, you look and in, in every interview is, is with a guy standing up by a set with, with an ad for Dunkin' Donuts or, or, or some bank behind him or, or, or something. You know, I mean, it's all kind of staged. And the, the, there are these large press conferences and, and everything is, is recorded, you know, on television. And there's no room for, for casual dialogue anymore. There's no room for anecdotes. Um, it's, all, it's all, what were you thinking on that play? Uh, 
you know, uh, how do you feel? And, and, and there's nobody to say, well, did you have a dog when you were growing up, you know, or, you know, some <laughs> kind of little, little thing, you know, uh, uh, it's, it, it's, it's become a big money, big business kind of thing. And the result, I think, is that it's moved away from that, that chipmunk idea, because it's just too hard to do that. It's, it's become far more based on all the analytics and the stats and all of that stuff. Do you enjoy sports as much as you used to? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, um, I found, I, you know, I worked at the Boston Globe for a whole bunch of years. And I, I, very, I was very uh, thoughtful about, about not rooting for the Boston teams, about not really rooting, just kind of going in with an objective point of view and, and everything. And I went to Sports Illustrated and, and it occurred to me one day, well, I can kind of root for the teams again. So I kind of started while I was at Sports Illustrated and, and now I very much root for the teams and it's, it's kind of fun that way. Yeah, you did what I did. I, I wound up at CBS in New York City trying to get a job right after I got out of college and you did the same thing with Sports Illustrated, not too successfully, but you worked there later on. Yeah, no, I went, you know, when I got out of college, I said, well, where do I want to work? And I said, well, I guess I want to work at Sports Illustrated because that's <laughs> the best place to work. And so I said, well, how do you do that? And, and, and I said, well, I guess you just apply. And so I, I called up Sports Illustrated and I said, how do I apply for a job? And they said, well, you, we give you an appointment with Miss So-and-so and Miss Gold, I think her name was. And uh, you, you come down and see Miss Gold and bring your clippings. And so I, I got my little suit on and my clippings and, and I went down at the appointed day and I was all excited that Sports Illustrated offices were right across the street from uh, Radio City. And uh, I had my shoes shined and everything. And I went and I had to wait to see Miss Gold. And, and, and I was waiting and there were two guys you know, there who were like in, in blue jeans and work boots. And, and we were sitting there and one guy said, uh, are you applying for a job? I said, yeah, uh, I'm applying to be a sports writer. He said, we are too. And we're, we're applying to be janitors. And, and they were waiting for Miss Gold too. So I had a feeling that, that it didn't work like you, you just went through human resources, you know. And I, I went in and she said, well, you got to go out and get experience and blah, 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 blah. And then yep. 25 years later, they gave me a call and said, would you like to come to work there? Tell me about some of those. I mean, you mentioned names that, that I know, like uh, Frank DeFord and Dan Jenkins and um, my friend Bob Creamer, who worked there for a while. Tell me about some of those years. You must have had a lot of freedom to do a lot of stuff. Yeah. What was weird is that you, you, you could continue to live you know, wherever you lived, you know, you didn't have to go live in New York, you never had to go in the office. So, I mean, you, you would think that I was on the staff with these guys, and we would be buddy, buddy and going out for drinks and blah, blah. But that wasn't the case at all. You know, um, I, I would be in Boston, and I would talk to these bosses from New York, and they would say, go to Milwaukee on Thursday, and I'd go to Milwaukee on Thursday. And the people I would see would be photographers, you know, I, I got to, to know a bunch of the photographers who were just terrifically talented guys and bright guys. Um, 
amazing photographers. Um, but I, I, I really didn't meet those guys. I mean, you, you would stumble across them here and there. And, and it was like you were in the same little secret fraternity, but you, you, you just, you just say hello. And, you know, I don't know. It wasn't a close relationship. You, you wrote books on two baseball icons, Ted Williams and Babe Ruth. Now, your book on Babe Ruth was written almost 60 years after he passed away. What made you decide to write with all the stuff that's been written about Ruth? What made you decide to write a book about him? And what did you learn that you didn't know before? Yeah, you know, I... I was I, I was going to say the same thing when they asked me to write a book about Babe Ruth. I said, I said Robert Creamer has written this great book about Babe Ruth. Why would I write a book about it? And and the editor guy said to me, "I'm 40 years old." He said, I, I, "I've never read Robert Creamer's book, and I never will read Robert Creamer's book." He said, "All the people that are 40 years old." We haven't read Robert Creamer's book, but if a new book came on Babe Ruth, we would be inclined to read it. And so I said, okay, that, that was a pretty good argument to me because Creamer's book was like 25 years old at the time. And, and the other books on Babe Ruth were 25. It hadn't, there hadn't been a new book on Babe Ruth in 25 years. Um, and so I, I jumped into it. And uh, it, it like you said, it, it was more of a, like a term paper in college, you know, where you had to go to the library and look things up and stuff. But I mean, there have been a lot of advances in the way you can uh, you can you can research now. You know, since when Kramer did his book, you know, just on the internet and stuff, you can find articles that you would had to had to you know take take a plane and go to Chicago to find. Um, <laughs> But now you just find them in, in, in your in your little office. So I mean, there, there were just a bunch of things. I the the one thing I came away thinking about Babe Ruth um, after doing the book was that he was a much smarter and shrewder guy than than we kind of the, the, than than the image that he has. You know, I I think he was very smart about some things. He business business wise, he, he wound up fine. Um, he, he, he hired the first, the, the first real, uh, personal trainer of anybody in any sport. Um, he, he did some wise things, you know, I mean, he, he did, he certainly did a bunch of foolish things, but he, he was a lot smarter than his image was, I thought. Yeah. Christy Walsh, uh, was his business agent <laughs> and, uh, I'm sure helped him a lot. Um, did, did yeah, you, did you, so he had the first agent he had the first personal trainer a guy Artie Goldberg you know he had he had um, he had an if people came to him with an idea like Christy Walsh came to him with an idea he was receptive enough to listen to it and uh, mm -hmm. I think I think that was that was a great thing for him all right um, Ted Williams um, again, a lot of books have been written about him. Why Ted Williams? Well, it was kind of the same deal. Um, there hadn't been a book on Ted Williams in 20-something years. And uh, I said, 
I suggested that book and, and I was sitting with the, my editor and the big boss editor in, in this restaurant in, in uh, New York City. And they said, well, what, why, why would, would you write about Ted Williams? What's compelling about him? I said, well, you know, he's the last guy to hit 400, but he fought in two wars and uh, he was married three times. And uh, I'd say there's a bunch of stuff out there. And, and they, that kind of sold him. And uh, that was great for me because it, it was a time where, where I could go and see a whole lot of these guys who, who were older guys and, and uh, I could catch him before they passed away uh, and, and talk with them and, uh, and hear their stories. And they, they were guys that were my idols when I was a kid, you know, the, the baseball cards that I collected, they, they were these guys, you know, Mickey McDermott and just different guys. And, yeah, and Frank well, Malzone. Frank Malzone, Dominic DiMaggio, you know, I mean, yeah. just a whole bunch of guys. And, and, and Ted Lepsio. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in fact, yeah. I think he's still around. Uh, Dan Ray oh, no. told me at no, BZ Ted, that, that, no, that he had lunch with him. a few years ago. Oh, did he? Yes. Um, but see, one of the advantages that Creamer had was that some of the guys that were Babe Ruth's roommate were still around, that, well, that yeah. played with him. Well, and, yeah, and unfortunately, you didn't have that advantage. I didn't. No, I didn't. Um, but, but I did have it for the Ted Williams book. Um, so, so it was interesting, but, but for the babe, you, you, you could find out what other guys had to say because you could look through all these newspaper files and stuff that no one had looked, looked through, you know, I mean, Creamer couldn't, couldn't have done it cause he couldn't have gone to Chicago and looked at all that stuff. You know, he couldn't have gone to the West coast or wherever, you know, you, you could, you could read about Babe Ruth when he played in Butte, Montana or somewhere because you could look at the Butte paper and they would have the whole story about when Babe came to town. Has it become easier as time goes on to write a book for you? Oh, I don't know. Each, each one is kind of a puzzle to, to be unlocked, you know? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess in a way, I mean, I, I think the, the whole the whole way you can research things on the internet now is is one of the great secrets out there that that virtually anybody could with a mind to do it could go and research a great book by by just looking up all the stories that have been written and and looking at, at the daily newspapers and, and the magazines and all of that it's all out there in, in your computer do you have anything in mind for another book Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know that after what? after after the um, I'll tell you what, after the, uh, the, the going to the finals with the with the Celtics and everything, I became I covered the Patriots for a year and and Cleve Rush was the coach of the Patriots. And that was a fascinating time. And in, in, in dealing with him, he, he kind of had a a breakdown, you know, while he was the coach. And, and it was just a strange situation. And I don't know, it must, it, maybe it's ancient history, but, but it's still fascinating to me. In, in the book that uh, Gary Pomerantz wrote about Cousy and Russell and the early Celtics, 
Kuzi kept mentioning or emphasizing that the base a basketball season is too long. Uh, yes, you agree I guess, with that? I guess you know. I mean, you know, it's it, they play a lot of games. That's for sure, you know. And and they they play these back to back games, and the the travel the travel's tough. It's a tough sport to play, and and if. The guy who's coaching the Celtics now, he's playing everybody 35 minutes, and you better wonder what's going to happen by the end of the season. Uh, baseball question. I thought 2020 should not have even happened because of the pandemic, and I can't imagine what it was like to play ball in a park with no fans. Should the season have been canceled? I think so. In, in retrospect, I mean, it didn't interest me at all. Um, it was tough to watch any of those sports um, during the pandemic, I think. I, I got into the basketball a little bit when they got in the playoffs, but, uh, but it was hard. And it had to be hard for the players, I think. You know, just to, I, you, you saw it. You saw it with the Red Sox when the, when, when, when the playoffs came this year how excited the players were to, to just finally get the full force of a Fenway Park crowd, people yelling. I, I, I went to the, the playoff game with the Yankees and, uh, and that, that crowd was just terrific. It was, it, it, it was just terrific. If there is a takeaway from your whole career as something you will treasure the rest of your life, what is it? Oh, man. I don't know. It, it, it's just, it's just, it's just been a cool way to live, you know. <laughs> yeah. To, to go to go to games and, and write about games, and I've I've always said, if you're a sports writer, you you're on the periphery of two great fields, sports and writing. You know, you're you're not an athlete, not playing, and you're not a famous novelist or something like that but you're close to it all and you feel it all and you you you, you get the reflected glow of it all and and that's pretty good and 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 it's been it's been a pleasure to be that close to stuff i have seen the radio business evolve into something that isn't as much fun as it was when i started in 1971 is the same thing true about sports writing? Is it harder now for people to break into sports writing as it can be for people to break into broadcasting? Because almost every ball club now, besides having a principal announcer, has to have a color commentator. And that color commentator usually is somebody who played the sport. Yeah, well, I mean, newspapers... Uh... You know, newspapers have been going out of business left and right and left and right, and there's been less money to spend, and 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 the whole game is different now. As as a new newspaper guy, you you you're on you're on that Twitter feed for every game, and you, you go to a press box now, and it's very quiet. It's like huh. um, it, it, it's like an insurance office or something, and and it's a dull insurance office at that because. Everybody is just kind of tapping out their, their little things for Twitter. And I, I don't know, this is probably an old man's perspective that there's no chance to just 
watch and look and absorb and and think about what you're watching. It's all it's all just you know just recording this stuff moment by moment. There are no jokes, you know. There are no no wisecracks. There's none of that, which to me were were the the best parts of, of being a sports writer. I I would rather go backwards and be one of those sports writers who covered covered baseball teams and, and took the trains all the time with the teams and everything. And, and like a road trip was, was like a, like a big adventure instead of, you know, just kind of dropping in out of the sky. I, every, it, it's just become a far more remote business. You know, you're moved further and further away and they've closed, they've closed all these locker rooms um, because of COVID and I, my bet is they're never going to be open again. Interesting. Listen, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. As I said before, I have known your name for years and have read some of your material. And um, I'm, I'm welcome the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. I almost wish we were doing this face to face because you are a man's a genius as far as sports writing is concerned. Uh, you and guys like Bob Ryan are legends to me in this town. And I can't thank you enough for sitting down and, and taking some time to talk about all this stuff. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ken. And we'll bump into each other somewhere, hopefully. Geez, I hope so. Maybe we can sit down and read a book together. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you take care of yourself, Lee, and thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye. And, and that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.